Hey guys, this is Jessica. This is Amy. And we are 1096 Crime Chicks. What, what? <laughs> and we are back to do the second part of Joe D. Bryan. Yes, and I guess just to do a little bit of an update, kind of remind y'all about part one, Joe was arrested for the murder of his wife, Mickey, got out on bond, lost a bunch of relationships because of it. This time we're gonna go over the trials that Joe went through for this case. Just a side note, I made it through my first week without working with Amy. It was devastating. It was pretty devastating. But we are reunited. Yay! And it feels so good. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so, alright Amy, so let's start this second piece on Joe D. Bryan. And this is going to be the start of his trials. Alright. In March 1986, when the state of Texas versus Joe D. Bryan commenced in the century-old limestone courthouse in Meridian, the county seat, the courtroom's wooden benches were crowded with spectators, many of whom had made the short drive from Clifton to observe both the trial and the man at its center. To virtually everyone in attendance, it was a shock to first behold Joe, former Sunday school teacher, Rotarian, high school principal to a generation of Clifton residents seated somberly at the defense table. His standing in the community was such that many of the potential jurors who appeared for jury duty reported knowing Joe in some way or having heard about the case. His attorneys, who were pleased that their well-regarded client was no stranger to a Bosque County jury pod, had requested a change of venue. Charles McDonald told TV news reporters, this is his home. He desires elects and wants to be if he has to be tried by people that know him best. There was good reason for the defense to feel confident at the start of the eight-day trial. It was entirely unclear at the outset of the state's case was winnable. Prosecutors had decided to try Joe prematurely without thoroughly investigating the case, McDonald opined, adding that his opposing counsel had a lot of exhibits but very little evidence. District Attorney Andy McMullen's tepid opening statement did little to dispel such skepticism. He did not lay out a narrative or comment to a theory of the case, nor did he express the sort of fervent moral outrage that can be effective in glossing over a scarcity of facts. But what McMullen lacked in pugilistic style was made for by his co-counsel, a bare-knuckled adversary named Gary Llewellyn, who served as special prosecutor. Though it is not uncommon for a DA lacking big city resources to seek assistance on a challenging case, Llewellyn had not been retained by Bosque County, but by Mickey's brother, Charlie Blue, who was paying his legal bills. The law differs from state to state, but generally, a victim's family may hire a special prosecutor so long as the DA maintains control of the case. So the brother is paying the prosecutor? Yes. Hmm. Blue's presence loomed large from the very beginning because he had discovered the flashlight. With no eyewitnesses who could place Joe and Clifton at the time of the murder, no murder weapon, and no forensic evidence that conclusively tied him to the crime scene. The prosecutor's case rested almost entirely on this one piece of evidence. Do you hear that airplane? <laughs> okay, just a little background music for you guys. I'm gonna let this get by. Investigators told the jury that they had located one of Joe's fingerprints on the back side of the reflector and another on the battery inside. Joe, in fact, had never denied the flashlight was his. He typically kept it in his bedroom, he said, and last remembered seeing it there. What was unclear was that relevance it had to the murder. Was Joe being truthful when he said he did not know how he would gotten in the trunk? Was the blood on it Mickey's? Was the flashlight connected to the crime? And if so, how? 
The state expended surprisingly little energy trying to answer these questions during the first days of trial. The most direct testimony came from Willie when he told the jury that investigators had observed bits of plastic at the crime scene, which they believed to be fragments of shell casings, and that he had seen two such fragments on the flashlight lens itself. A crime lab chemist, Patricia Almanza, appeared to support his claim when she testified that he examined a fragment from the lens under a microscope and that it had similar properties to what was found at the scene. Whether her findings were conclusive or not was never scrutinized. Joe's lawyers did not press for detailed description of their testing protocol or ask what other materials might share similar properties. They failed to point out to jurors that the plastic bits were not easily seen in photographs of the flashlight and they did not question how the fragments had managed to stay on the lens for nearly a week during which time the flashlight was picked up, handled, and transported in the back of a moving vehicle. I don't know about you, but when I drive and there's stuff in my trunk, it's rolling everywhere. I know that's right. So. And my trunk is full of junk. You don't have any flashlights, do you? No. Okay. What about money bags? You know. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Other forensic evidence either pointed away from Joe or proved to be more bewildering than clarifying. Two human hairs found in the cardboard box in the trunk did not match either of the Bryans, nor did 13 latent prints lifted from the master bedroom and bathroom, though the possibility existed that the prints predated the murder because they had not been left behind in blood. The significance of the most intriguing clue, an unidentified palm print on the headboard of the bed, which did not warrant Joe's, would never be determined. The inked impressions of Mickey's palms that were taken at the time of her autopsy were performed incorrectly and, as a result, could not be used for comparison. The prosecution would try to assign sinister motives to the fact that Joe had kept a pair of plastic gloves in his trunk, gloves on which Almanza said she detected a, quote, very minute amount of blood. But the gloves, the clear disposable type that were dispensed at gas station pumps, looked clean and unworn, and there was not enough blood to yield even a blood type. Arguably, the single most consequential piece of evidence was a cigarette butt on the kitchen floor. It was this clue, more than any other, that threatened to undermine the prosecution's case by suggesting the presence of a stranger in the Bryan home. Yet, early on in the trial, Wiley asserted that he had brought it into the house himself. He said, quote, It stuck to the bottom of my boot outside and I tracked it into the floor. When McDonald asked him on cross-examination how he knew he had done so, Wiley replied, quote, Well, you'll have a witness that will testify to that, I was told. That witness was a Clifton police officer named Kenneth Fields, who claimed he had seen the cigarette fall from Wiley's boot, though he admitted he never wrote down what happened. Similarly, Wiley made no note of it in his 25-page report. The prosecution went on to argue that Justice of the Peace Alvin James had tossed the cigarette butt to the ground outside the Bryan home. The blood grit substance detected on the cigarette indicated that it had been handled by someone with type A blood, which James, along with about one-third of the population, had. To win a conviction, however, prosecutors needed to do something much more complicated than deflect attention from details like the cigarette butt. They had to explain how Joe, who was attending the principal's... Oh, oh my <laughs> word! <laughs> a June bug just dived at Amy's head. Yeah, and y'all, I don't like June bugs. Okay. They had to explain how Joe, who was attending the principal's conference in Austin, could have been in Clifton at the time of the murder. Their account was constrained by two indisputable facts. Joe's last call with Mickey, which was placed from his hotel in Austin, ended at 9.15 p.m. on October 14th. 
He was also seen the next morning when she was found dead by witnesses at the conference in Austin. The prosecution's case then required the jury to believe the following. Shortly after speaking to Mickey, Joe slipped out of the Hyatt, drove 120 miles to Clifton at night through very heavy rain, even though he had an eye condition that made night driving difficult. Shot his wife, with whom he had a history of conflict, ditched the pistol and jewelry, yet kept a flashlight speckled with blood in his trunk, drove 120 miles back to Austin, and re-entered the Hyatt, went upstairs to his room, all in time to clean up and attend conferences morning sessions, all without leaving behind a single eyewitness. This was a difficult story to prove, and some of the state's own witnesses lent credence to the defense's case. James Smith, the principal to whom Joe had given his car when his colleagues came to drive him back to Clifton, testified that Joe showed no hesitancy in turning over the keys to the Mercury, not the expected behavior of someone presumed to have fled a messy crime scene hours earlier in the same vehicle. Its interior, Smith added, was clean. When Charlie Blue took the stand on the fourth day of trial, the prosecution sought to cast him as a sympathetic figure, an older brother who had, by investigating the case himself and hiring a special prosecutor, gone the extra mile to find justice for his sister. The trim, self-assured 47-year-old told the juries he initially harbored no suspicion of his brother-in-law. He decided to call a private investigator, explained, only after the local funeral home director suggested he do so. An insurance company called to verify her death about paying an insurance claim, Blue said. Whether that triggered him to suggest to me that I should get an investigator or whether he thought that it might not be handled thoroughly, I don't know. Blue told the jury that he soon called Saunders and recounted how he and his private investigator had driven around the countryside the following day and made their startling discovery. When I opened the trunk of the car, he said, I saw the flashlight that had red specks on it, or dark specks, and my immediate reaction was, that looks like blood. He's shady. Oh, yeah. I don't like that guy. No, he is shady. When McDonald rose to cross-examine Blue, he sharply questioned the witness, seeking to expose the fragility of the state's case, which hung almost entirely on Blue's credibility. Have you ever thought about it? Perhaps you have, Mr. Blue. How would you prove to this jury that you didn't put that flashlight in that box? McDonald asked. I'm here to testify what I found, Blue said. I'm asking you, sir, if you were called on other than your word and perhaps the word of Mr. Saunders, how can you tell us and prove positively that you didn't put it in there? I didn't, Blue shot back. I found it in there. The defense's fiercest attack on Blue came when Wiley was on the stand and McDonald pressed him to provide a rationale for the state's case against Joe. You haven't come up with one motive at all, have you, for this man to kill this woman, he said. She's worth over $300,000 to him dead, if you want to surmise a motive, Wiley countered, referring to Mickey's life insurance and savings. McDonald turned this detail back on Wiley. You know that Mr. Blue has filed a suit claiming some of this money up in Cleveland, Texas, claiming all of it, don't you? You know that's pending, don't you? I know he's filed a suit, yes, sir. You know he's got some other lawyers up there. If this man's convicted, Mr. Blue stands to gain some money, don't you? I didn't know who stood to gain the money, Wiley said. Haven't checked that out? No, sir. Bull. Right. That is complete bull. Yeah. He knew he was going to get something. Mm-hmm. During Wiley's time on the stand, he worked diligently to refocus the jury's attention. He testified that a pair of Joe's discarded underwear, which stained with semen matched Joe's blood type, was moist. I hate that word. When investigators found it in the wastebasket of the master bathroom, implying that Joe had been in the home not long before Mickey's body was found. Wiley conceded that he had made no mention of the stains wetness in his report, though he insisted that the underwear tended to stick together. Ew. Ew. Almanza, the crime lab chemist, was unable to substantiate that they had been moist. Still, the word moist became prosecutors' favorite rhetorical flourish, as they called jurors. 
Ew. They made reference to the Chippendales calendar with equal enthusiasm, darkly suggested that Joe was not in the upright citizen he had claimed to be. It's evidence of kind of perverted behavior, McMullen told the jury. The state's innuendo lace language was a powerful tool at the time when AIDS was a relatively new and little understood public health threat, and in a place where under state law, gay sex was still considered a criminal act. Prosecutors' insinuation also provoked a broader question. If Joe was concealing the very nature of who he was, what else was he hiding? In the absence of any solid evidence that placed him in Clifton at the time of the murder, they shifted their focus to discrediting Joe himself. McMullen called a Hyatt employee to the stand who had an odd story to tell. He testified that Joe returned to the hotel after he was arrested and out on bail, claiming that a security guard had approached him during the principal's conference and asked for temporary access to his hotel room, keys, and valuables so that the hotel might try to catch a housekeeper who was stealing from guests. According to the Hyatt employee, Joe explained that he had agreed to help the guard, but that he had come to wonder about the incident after his wife was found dead. No one who fits the guard's description worked at the hotel, nor was there any evidence of such sting operation, and prosecutors who treated the story with derision suggested that Joe had concocted it in an effort to divert attention from himself. That is so stupid. I mean, come on. I know. That was all anyone was ever able to dig up on Joe. The state never produced any witnesses who spoke of a troubled marriage or a violent past. They never located anyone who had caught a glimpse of him in Clifton in the late evening of October 14, 1985, or the pre-dawn hours of the following morning. As that state's case limped to a close, jurors were left with only a mishmash of evidence, the flashlight, the underwear, the cigarette butt, but no clearer picture of how or why Joe would have killed the woman he loved. When Robert Thorman settled into the witness box on the fifth and final day of the state's case, it marked a turn in the prosecution's fortunes. Thorman was the bloodstained pattern analyst who was called to the Bryan home when investigators were still working the scene. As an interpreter of bloodstains, Thorman possessed a singular expertise, and the prosecution would use this to bring its hazy narrative into focus, lending a sense of scientific certainty to an otherwise equivocal set of facts. Forensic scientists and criminalists had long looked at bloodstains at crime scenes as potentially valuable clues. A few even attempted to trace the trajectories of the blood back to its source and, in doing so, to reverse engineer the crime scenes themselves. They believed that bloodstain pattern analysis, the examination of the shape, dimension, location, and distribution of bloodstains, could help them answer critical questions. What type of weapon caused the fatal wounds? Where was the victim standing when he was shot, stabbed, or bludgeoned to death? Was she killed at the location where she was found, or was her body moved there? Trying to find the answers to these questions required an understanding of fluid dynamics and high-level math. But in the decade leading up to Joe's trial, bloodstain analysis began to migrate out of research labs and into police departments. Thorman was one of a growing number of officers who were taking week-long trainings in the discipline and who sometimes testified as expert witnesses. Though these police officers lacked the advanced scientific education of their predecessors, they too began to use bloodstain pattern analysis to reconstruct crimes. Blood, they held, had a story to tell. Thorman was one of growing number of officers who were taking a week-long training. Right. So a week-long training to be a specialist in blood analysis. And an expert witness at that. I mean, yeah. that's ridiculous. He is no more an expert than dispatchers are. Right. I mean, really. The district attorney began by leading Thorman through a recitation of his credentials. The detective explained that he had served as a military police officer for 20 years before working his way up through the ranks of several small law enforcement agencies and that he had been trained in bloodstain interpretation. 
The jury did not know that Dorman's training was limited to a 40-hour class he took four months before Mickey was killed. Ding, ding, ding. Exactly. I mean, did the defense know that? I guess they didn't. Probably not. Dorman said he arrived at the Bryan's home after Mickey's body was removed and that he carefully inspected the master bedroom where he recalled there was a vast amount of blood on her. But Dorman did not spend much time describing his analysis of the bedroom because it had turned up little to new information. At McMullen's direction, Thorman focused instead on the flashlight. To win their case, the prosecution needed to tie the flashlight, which was found days after the murder, outside the Bryan home to the crime scene. Thorman, under McMullen's questioning, did exactly that. Photos of the flashlight that were shown to the jury revealed an object almost wholly devoid of blood, save for a scattering of tiny flecks on the lens that occasionally, to the untrained eye, it did not look like much. But Thorman claimed that the particular pattern on the lens had deep significance in the case. He identified the pattern as blowback or commonly known as blood splatter. That is blood that had traveled backwards at high velocity from a target. It was the unmistakable signature of a shooting and of a shooting that had taken place at close range, as Mickey's had. Back splatter usually travels no further than 46 inches, Thurman told the jury, an assertion that echoed early testimony from a forensic pathologist who found that the greatest distance between Mickey and the killer at the time of the shooting was likely no more than a couple of feet. Thorman's testimony effectively erased any doubt about whether the flashlight was relevant to the case. He had, in essence, placed it in the Bryan's bedroom at the time that the murder took place. Moreover, he told jurors, the lack of spatter on the flashlight's handle indicated that someone had been holding it when it was sprayed with blood. Quote, the handle portion indicates the flashlight was in the hand, he said. By his telling them, it had been both present at the crime and held by the killer. I'm sorry. If I was a killer, I wouldn't hold a flashlight and then shoot somebody with my other hand. Right. I mean, come on. Unless you're an expert at shooting a gun with one hand. Right. During his time on the stand, Thorman made another critical finding that shored up the state's case. Until then, prosecutors had not been made able to provide an answer for the most troublesome question if faced. If Joe had killed Mickey and then fled with the flashlight, why was no blood found on the interior of the mercury? Thorman himself testified that the killer was covered in blood, yet Joe's car was spotless. It was an inconsistency that called the state's entire case into question. But once again, McMullen's questioning, Thorman offered an explanation. Blood was not found in other areas of the house, he told the jury, leading him to conclude that, quote, the individual that committed or perpetuated the crime ended cleaned up prior to leaving that bedroom. The killer, he added, had most likely done so in the bathroom, an assertion that did not appear to be grounded in blood stain analysis. No blood was found in the bathroom other than some small drops on a receipt of the Bryans in the wastebasket. Still, Thorman theorized that the killer had wiped himself off there with a rag, changed his clothes, and even slipped on a different pair of shoes before exiting the house. McMullen took this idea one step further, asking a question that went far beyond the bounds of what a blood stain pattern analyst is qualified to evaluate. The prosecutor asked, quote, there would have to have been shoes there to fit the killer then, wouldn't there? In an obvious allusion to Joe. I would assume that, Thorman said. I just don't think, I mean, you got to say he kills his wife, cleans up everything, leaves absolutely no evidence in the house, but then leaves a flashlight in his car. But no other evidence in the car. And nothing in the car. Where's his bloody clothes? Where's his bloody shoes? Where's the bloody rag that he said he used? Exactly. McMullen rested his case later that afternoon. When it was finally Joe's turn to speak on the trial's sixth day, he told of the devastation over his wife's death and of the affection and respect that he and Mickey had shared. We never gave each other any reason nor any doubt about our feeling and our love for one another. 
He insisted he never left his hotel room after he spoke with Mickey on the evening of October 14th and recalled attending an 8.30 a.m. session at the principal's conference the following morning. He also told the jury of his peculiar encounter with the hotel guard, a story that Llewellyn, the special prosecutor, urged as a cudgel in a blistering cross-examination that cast Joe as a fabulist. Fabulous. I don't know, Joe repeated again and again, sometimes through tears, as Llewellyn pressed him about different details of the case and hounded him to say who else would have killed Mickey. I don't understand any of this. Never have from the very beginning, Joe said. No fewer than 36 defense witnesses followed a succession of friends and former colleagues who each took the stand to praise Joe's character and reinforce the notion that he could never have committed such a heinous act. But in the end, none of it mattered. Thorman's testimony had made the state's tenuous theory of the crime seem plausible, allowing the prosecution to gloss over the deficiencies of the case. Even McMullen seemed to acknowledge these weaknesses in his closing argument. It was essential to have a special prosecutor in this case because, as you've seen, that man, referring to Joe, is shrewd. He is intelligent, and it would take a great deal of effort to be able to prosecute him and prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In his thundering summation, Llewellyn drew from Thorman's testimony as he sketched a chilling portrait of the man sitting at the defense table. Mickey didn't go to bed and leave the house unlocked that night, Llewellyn declared. She locked the door, and a man came in with a key, and after all hell broke loose in the bedroom, he cleaned up, changed clothes, wiped up the lavatory, threw his clothes in a bag, and walked out the front door. Then Joe, Llewellyn added, went right back, walking in the front door of the Hyatt Hotel, whistling Dixie. Less than four hours after jurors began their deliberations, Joe rose from his seat and listened as the judge read aloud the verdict. Quote, we, the jury, find the defendant, Joe D. Bryan, guilty of murder. His punishment was later set at 99 years. At different times during the trial, Joe said he had wanted to scream at the top of his lungs, to yell at everyone that I did not kill Mickey, and how could everyone think I could or would do such a thing? But in that moment, as he stood in a state of disbelief, he was rendered mute. In the summer of 1988, two years after Joe's conviction, a longtime Clifton resident named Carol Smith was shopping at the Richland Mall in Waco when she spotted a man who looked just like Joe Bryan. He had the same wire-rimmed glasses, the same wavy brown hair, the same ruddy complexion, but he seemed to lack Joe's sense of purposefulness as he meandered through the mall, gazing absently at the window displays. Smith, then an editor at the Clifton Record, the town's weekly newspaper, knew Joe well. He had guided and reassured her many times when her son was navigated high school, and as the man came closer, she felt certain it was him. Joe, she called. That February, Joe's conviction was overturned on a technicality, and though Smith knew that Joe had been released from prison, she had been unaware until that moment of his whereabouts. The ruling did not exonerate Joe. It only found fault with his trial. A three-judge panel had concluded that the trial judge erred when he denied a particular defense request to reopen testimony late in the trial. In doing so, the judge prevented Joe's attorneys from reading to the jury a deposition they conducted with the Bryan's insurance agent, in which the agent refuted a brief but noteworthy piece of testimony. Wiley's claim that Mickey, upon her death, was, quote, worth over $300,000 to Joe. Her life insurance, it turned out, was valued at about half as much. The ruling made no determination as to Joe's guilt or innocence. He still stood charged with murder, and the Bosque County DA's office would retry him the following summer. For the time being, though, Joe was a free man, or as free as a man can be while waiting to stand trial for a murder he had already been convicted of once. I feel sorry for him. I do, too. Just visualizing him walking through the mall by himself, like, yeah, because everybody's alienated him. Already. Yeah. So he had nowhere to go. No friends, no church, no colleagues. Joe was glad to catch sight of Smith, his expression softening. Carol, he said, 
Smith asked him if he would like to sit and visit, and they settled on a nearby bench. She was mindful not to overwhelm him with questions. She listened, letting him guide the conversation. As he spoke, it was apparent that the strain of the trial and his incarceration had been almost more than he could bear and that he felt the need, even to shoppers strolling by, to unburden himself. The words came quickly as he enumerated all that he had lost. My wife, my job, my home, everything, he said, his voice welling with disbelief, as if it were still trying to grasp how he found himself in such a fantastical situation. It had been nearly three years since Miggy's death, but he still had not had time to properly grieve. He said nothing about his time in prison, and Smith did not venture to ask him about it. When they rose to say goodbye, she embraced him and wished him well. I got the feeling he didn't have anywhere to go or anyone to talk to, she said. By then, opinions in Clifton had turned against him, so much so that talking to Joe at the mall could be seen as a radical act. The record, which covered Joe's first trial extensively, did not question the verdict. The reporter who was dispatched to write about it walked away believing that Joe was guilty. The prevailing wisdom held that the jury rendered its decision after hearing all the facts. Most people felt he was probably guilty because he'd been convicted, even if no one was really sure why he'd done it, the former superintendent said. Many of Joe's former colleagues and friends had distanced themselves from him since the trial, though privately some, some still struggled to reconcile the man they knew with the person the prosecution had portrayed him to be. It was very hard for me to believe that Joe had taken Mickey's life, Cindy Horn, the former teacher's aide said. Yet, like most people in Clifton, she held the criminal justice system in high regard. They widely held assumption was that law enforcement and the courts were always right. I based what I thought on the verdict, Horn said. I assumed Joe was guilty because he was found guilty. At his retrial, which spanned seven days in June of 1989, the erosion in trust was visible. Joe's witnesses had dwindled from 36 at the first trial to just five. Gone were the TV reporters, the crush of spectators, and the sense that Joe, by virtue of his good reputation, could overcome a vigorous prosecution. McMullen, the district attorney, was again assisted by Llewellyn, the special prosecutor, as they summoned largely the same witnesses who appeared at the first trial. It was in every way a repeat of the story the prosecution told before. Wiley recounted the horror of the crime scene. There was blood all over the bed, blood spattered on the ceiling, the walls, and Blue narrated the moment he discovered the flashlight. When I opened the trunk, there was a cardboard box and my eyes just zoomed in on it. McMullen asked Almanza, the crime lab chemist, if a bit of blue plastic on the flashlight lens had the same chemical properties as shell casings at the crime scene, and she agreed that it did. And once again, when Thorman took the stand, he was the one who tied the disparate strands of the state's case together. Thorman told the jury not only that the flashlight was in the bedroom at the time of the shooting, but also that the killer, before fleeing the scene, had changed into clothes that were already in the Bryan home. He delivered his findings with the authority of an expert, stripping away the ambiguities of the state's case. As he spoke to the jury, he grounded his findings in the certainty of science. Quote, based on my knowledge and experience in bloodstain interpretation, which are none, right, the flashlight itself was right next to her or near the source of energy, that being the gun. By the time the guilty verdict came down on the last day of trial, it seemed like a foregone conclusion. Joe was again sentenced to 99 years. I don't see how he gets sentenced twice to 99 years with absolutely no evidence. I know. Nothing. No witnesses, no proof, no fingerprints, no nothing. Just a flashlight in the trunk of his car that may or may not have had blood on it. Because back then, DNA testing was no. relatively new, if that much. Yeah, I mean, they actually used DNA testing for the first time in the O.J. Simpson trial, and that was in the 90s. The so, 90s. it didn't even exist yet then. Right. 99 years. And how he went from 36 witnesses to just five. That just goes to show you how quick people are to turn their back on you. It's so sad. It is very sad. 
Joe was sent back to the same prison where he was previously held, Texas' oldest penitentiary known as the Walls Unit in Huntsville, where the state's execution chamber is housed. In letters back home to his mother, his older brother, and the few friends who remained in touch with him, Joe was circumspect, revealing little about his existence behind bars or emotional toll of incarceration. By then, he no longer heard from many people he loved, including Jerry, his twin brother, who distanced himself after Joe's first trial. Who does that? It's a twin. Even his last remaining Clifton friends gradually faded away. Linda Lyrden wrote to Joe every now and then, but eventually she let the correspondence languish. I was busy raising my boys and life moved on, she said. I'm ashamed to admit that, but after a while, I struggled with what to say. Still, she was left with an uneasy feeling. After Joe's first conviction, she said people had stopped talking about Judy Whitley's death. One rumor went around that maybe Joe killed her, too, she said. I think wrapping all this violence up in one neat little package was comforting to people. Everyone could put this behind them and not have to think that maybe someone was out there who had gotten away with murder. Well, I hate to break it to you, Clifton folks, but somebody did. And he did not kill that little girl. The naive minds of people going, oh, maybe he killed her, too, or safe. Nope. Not happening. So that's the end of tonight's episode. But we have more to come. Yes, we do. We have lots more to come. I was going to say, what, four episodes of this? Probably because we have another big chunk of information just about, like, the bloodstain pattern analysis Mm -hmm. and different things like that. And then... I'm assuming we can go ahead in, like, the fourth episode and give some updates, some recent updates. Yes, yes, because this has recently made the news. That would be interesting to be able to add that to the end of our episode or do updates on him. Oh, I forgot. We have some reviews. Oh, right. We have more? Yes. Yay. Yay. More shout-outs. See, I told y'all we'll do shout-outs if you'll leave reviews. I was just thinking. Where's the airplane when you need it? Right? (laughs) I'm glad it didn't storm. It was lightning earlier. We're on my back porch, just so you know. But it feels amazing. I don't have June bugs and airplanes in my house. (laughs) I mean, I do have four kids. Okay, so we have two new reviews since the last episode. One is from Heather Murray. Oh, I don't know her. Just kidding. Hi, sister. We love you. (laughs) Yes, we do. So her review says, love them personally and as podcasters. Great job, girls. I'm hooked. I tell everyone I know. Yes. Keep spreading the word, sister. We really appreciate that. Now, the next one, I'm assuming is the librarian. And it says, so glad y'all are podcasting. Love the show. Looking forward to more episodes. Thanks for explaining the hiatus. Was worried y'all had quit. Also, congrats, Amy. Oh, yes, Amy and her new job. Yeah, which so went well this week. It went very well. I am super pumped. This is like the perfect job for me. And as much as I miss Jessica, I think it's probably like I'll be there for the rest of my life. Just rub it in, why don't you? Just yeah. rub it in. And, and then when we saw each other today, I like ran up and gave her a hug. <laughs> so it was pretty nice. Like we didn't see each other last week. <laughs> But all right, guys. Well, thanks again for listening. Thank you for the reviews. Keep leaving them. So my friend, Luke, made a recording of when I signed off as dispatcher for the last time at the police department. All right, Luke, here's your shout out. Dispatch, not all along yet. I am 1042, and it Good luck. You're going to kick ass. So thank you.
thank you, Luke. That was really awesome, and I'm glad that we were able to play it. That was really sweet. Yeah. I'm glad I wasn't there. I would have cried. Yeah, <laughs> I did kind of choke up. Mm-hmm. So We'll still see you occasionally. Yeah. All right, guys. So thanks for listening to 1096 Crime Chicks. Don't forget, find us on Twitter, Facebook. Leave us reviews. We'll give you a shout-out. Our and email, 1096crimechicks at gmail.com. Yeah, so shoot us an email if you have some stories or some information or a story you want us to do. Let us know. Stay tuned for episode three on Jody Bryan. I can promise you it's going to get better. Yes, it is. Bye, guys. Bye. You've heard the stories about murder and homicide. But what about the rest of the crimes committed daily? What about the police officer who robbed banks during lunch or the multi-million dollar diamond heist? What about the assaulters, stalkers, and arsonists? I'm Lindsay, the host of Mugshot. Mugshot is a new true crime podcast that tells the stories of non-murderous crimes. Season one has begun and new episodes release on Mondays. Mugshot can be found on most podcatchers and on social media at the handle at MugshotPod. I hope you'll join me, but until then, be on your best behavior or you'll end up with your own mugshot. Joe was glad to catch sight of Smith. His expression softened. Carol, he said, brightening smile. When it was finally Joe's turn to speak on the day's six trials. Some still struggled to reconcile the mean. They knew him. Where am I? Reconcile the man. Thanks. Thanks for that typo. I appreciate it. I've listened to all of them. So I'm super excited. <laughs> I tried to kill the June bug and it didn't work. <laughs> I spilled my beer. <laughs> Party fell. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what we're doing. Yeah. So, um, Blue's present. The prosecution would try to incorrectly, and as a result, hmm, sorry. And re-entered the Hyatt and uh, went up. This was a difficult story to prove, and some of the state's own witnesses lent credence to the defense's case. I gotta repeat that. The district attorney began by leading Thurman through a... Recitation. 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 Photos of the flashlight that were shown to the jury revealed an object almost wholly devoured of blood. That's not devoured. Devoid. <sighs> as incarceration. The words came quickly as he enumerated. What is that word? Enumerated. Hush! Fabulous.